Romans 15, verse 22. The Apostle writes to the Roman church, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it. And, indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When there are, therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected... I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. We ask, Lord, that the proclamation of Your Word would go forth in the Spirit. We look at an old communication between people long gone, and it would be easy for us to look back at the historical pieces of it and to be mildly entertained if not bored to tears. But I pray that in this place today that you would work by your Spirit to teach us the significance of this word to a local church and that you might help us to understand our part in this story. I pray that you would help us, indeed, those who suffer trial in difficulty beyond what they can seem to bear and understand, that even there you would minister this word to help us to understand how to see life, how to order our lives under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Father, we come to you in our need spiritually and realize that we can so easily squander this opportunity, but ask that you would move in and through us for the glory of your name as we consider this passage together. Through Christ I pray. Amen. <clears throat> Mine. A toddler rips a toy away from younger sister who protests wailing. 
Honey, shouldn't you share your fruit snack with your brother? No, my fruit snack. Sharing does not come naturally to us, does it? Sharing is one of the lessons parents must patiently and persistently teach their children. Many children discover along the way that sharing can win them some favors and sharing can even make them feel good and so they'll try it once in a while. But the kind of sharing that takes what I could enjoy and it freely passes that joy on to someone else is not a virtue that comes naturally until it does. When I started dating Beth, I suddenly wanted to share a lot of things. Overnight, I became less tight with my money, and I really hoped that she would spend it with me. I became unusually liberal with my time, and eventually I came to the point where I wanted to share my life with her, and it's been a joy to do so. And then you become a parent, and there are things you refuse to share with your kids, and you should. Things you share somewhat grudgingly, and that's actually loving. But children can also awaken in parents a deep longing to share our time. I want to give my time to you. I want to give my resources and my wealth to you. I want to share experiences with you. And blessed is the soul that knows the satisfaction of giving away material resources for the pure joy of it. The joy of mature sharing certainly demands the maturing of some aspects of relationship, doesn't it? It demands a maturing of our relationship with material wealth. The child that says, mine, I will not share, of course needs to mature and to grow to the place where they come to understand that there is a deep joy in sharing. Not just a manipulative way from time to time, but that there's genuine pleasure in it. And we secondly then need to come to maturity in our relationship with others. To recognize that everyone in this earth is not a competitor, not someone that we need to protect our wealth against, but that there is a joy in turning over what I could enjoy for myself, and I find even deeper pleasure in seeing you enjoy it. Such mature joy is found, I believe, in highest form when we invest our resources in the shared mission of the risen Christ. Now there could be some debate on that. Say, what about our children? What about our mates? What about our loved ones, our parents, and the sharing that we do with family? But I think that when we recognize that our Savior has commissioned us in this world, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Going into all the world then, preach the good news of my death and resurrection to all people. 
And since there is no more glorious enterprise in this world from a heavenly standpoint, there is no more glorious sharing opportunity than when we invest in the advance of the conquering gospel of Jesus Christ. This gathering today reorients our thinking along these lines. It reminds us that there is a Lord in heaven, that there is this conquest going on, that this is the great mission of our existence. The work of the risen Christ calling a people together for His name from the nations. That they might find their joy and their strength and their salvation in Him. There's no more glorious enterprise in this world And believing that truth, coming to reality, coming to to a realization of that truth, that reality, changes the focus of our lives. It really does. It radically reorients the way that I relate to everyone and to my material possessions. We see this reality in clear display in Romans 15, 22-33 where the apostle seeks to tap the sharing spirit of the believers in the Roman church for the gospel. In verses 22 through 29, we notice Paul's focus upon the future and his long-term plan to use the church at Rome as a supply station for gospel advance. If that sounds just a little audacious, it might have to them as well. A little bold, a little daring to say, I want you to be a supply stop on my route to further evangelization. But that's what he's saying here. We see the reason that Paul has not visited Rome to date in verse 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. And obviously we need to ask the question, well, what's this? What is the this that has hindered him? That's all that he's been talking about, verses 16 through 21 particularly. As you notice on the map here, he has been working his way, starting in Jerusalem, certainly stationed primarily at Antioch, but on the right side of this slide in this map, working his, his mission across uh, this whole region, this whole territory that we see here. He's wanted to visit them in the capital of the empire, see uh, just to the left of middle there of Rome, and that red uh, dot there, that's where they are. He writes from Corinth, in fact, at the center of the slide there, and, uh, is, is, but is saying, I, this is where I've been. This is what I've been doing. This is why I haven't come to you, because of this work of spreading the gospel in this entire region. I've wanted to come often, but I haven't been able to. However, there are developments that now commend Paul's visit to Rome. Verse 23, But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. He's not claiming here that there was no one else to hear the gospel, of course, that there was no more place for any other church to be planted, by no means. He's just talking about his unique mission which was to go to key cities in the empire across this stretch of earth. And he says, I've accomplished that. I've set up these beachheads for the gospel in these key cities of the empire. And it's time for me now, I am convinced, under the direction of the Spirit, it's time for me now to press westward. There's an established Christian community, obviously in Rome, and so he wants to move on from there. But he's completed his work 
in the east, we, hear, we see here verses 23 through 24. But then he mentions Spain. His future mission in the west, he continues there, the middle of verse 24, as I go to Spain. And then I want to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. He informs the Roman church of his plans, plans that include them. He wants them, he says here, to help on my way. What would that include? In that day, in that setting, from everything we can determine, that would include lodging. That would include food. That would include financial support. You didn't travel freely any more then than you do now. And so they, he would need uh, monetary supply to carry the, the work forward into Spain. It is very conceivable that he would have been seeking companions along the road. You needed to supply your own security. It would be very helpful if there were individuals that would understand the travel in that region and perhaps even speak uh, various languages that would help in translation as Paul carried out this work to Spain. I need your help. I need you to help supply my way there. And I look forward to the opportunity then to meet with you after I've enjoyed your company. Secondly, there, verse 24. I want to be refreshed by you. Now one could certainly read the first part, I want your support, I want to use you as a supply station, as kind of a, a stingy uh, or a, a, an aggressive play for their finances, and they could respond with a stingy, cold response of saying, well, we want to hold on to our resources, we don't want to share them with you. They'd never personally met Paul, at least the vast majority from all that we can see. But I think if their response is calibrated to the risen Christ, what are they going to say? Paul is our brother in Christ. It would be a joy to share our resources as a base of operation for the advance of the gospel in Spain. In fact, we can't wait till he's here. We can't wait to begin to pour out our resources and our sharing in this great mission of carrying the gospel to new places. I mean, how would you respond if a relative you had not seen for some time was flying into town for a job interview and wanted to stay with you at your home for a couple of days? How would you respond? You go, well, you've got to give me more here. <laughs> Who's the relative, right? How, how, do, how do I relate to them? Who are they? I mean, I could see that scenario being really ugly. Or I could see that scenario being, oh, I can't wait till they're here. can't wait to help and draw them in and help them along on their way. This is exciting that this relative is coming. It depends on who that person is. Imagine that it's a brother or a sister, an aunt or uncle or someone that you love very much and long to help. It's joyful to pour out your resources to them. I think that would be how Rome would respond here. This is an apostle of Jesus Christ. We've read this letter. Wow! This is a theologian of unusual capacity and wants to take the gospel into Spain. Can we have part in this? What a joy it would be for the apostle to come and to share our resources to take him forward. 
Christ's apostle to the Roman church is engaged in the most important enterprise in the universe. If the Roman church gets this, looking upward to the risen Christ and seeing the Apostle Paul and what God is doing through him, they are going to leap at this request. The mission is that grand and that important. But notice in verse 24 that Paul also hopes to be refreshed by their company. He'll not stay long, but while he's there, he wants to interact with them, to talk about God's Word, to teach them God's Word indeed, chapter 1 and verse 15. And he will enjoy refreshment in communion with them as they interact as brothers and sisters in Christ. This is that amazing thing. He doesn't know these people. He's not been there before but he knows the fellowship will be rich because of Christ's saving grace. The way that Christ has saved him is the way that Christ has saved them, and he anticipates rich family conversation. Paul now disappoints the mature in the church who understand this opportunity as he now explains to them that it's not going to happen particularly quickly. Verses 25 through 27, the mission Paul must undertake prior to visiting Rome is described here. Verse 25, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. And that's almost like saying a friend from Southern California that's passing through town and wants to see you is first going to go to China. I mean, it kind of hits them that way. Wait a minute, Jerusalem is in the exact opposite direction of Rome. So this isn't going to be a, a, a visit that comes quickly. The visit to Rome will not happen soon, but why then, we ask, is Paul headed to Jerusalem? His third missionary journey has concluded and he has orchestrated along the way, this, remember this, this unique gift, as he went to Gentile churches, he was raising resources, finances, for the believers in Jerusalem who were struggling with poverty. There's a, probably a, a lot of sociological, economic reasons for their struggle, but Paul was up to more than just meeting that physical need, but he, at any rate, he was, he was gathering these collections, and he wanted to deliver them to Jerusalem at this time. It was time to do it. The third missionary journey was complete. For, he explains further in verse 26, Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it. They longed to share their resources. Macedonia and Achaia, today Greece and a bit northward into Macedonia, southern Albania, that area. He says, I've been working through there of late. We've been establishing churches, proclaiming the gospel of Christ, and Gentile believers have been giving liberally, freely, sharing their resources to say, please take these gifts back to the believers in Jerusalem. They need it. They're impoverished. And we ask that you would do this. It pleased them, we note here again. And I, I think we must not miss the point. Verse 26, they were pleased. Verse 27, they were pleased. That is, they delighted in sharing their resources. 
we just kind of take a look back into some other texts that Paul lays out this collection uh, for the saints in Jerusalem. This was the instruction that he gave. 1 Corinthians 16, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Let me just say a quick side note. Eden Baptist Church is calibrated to those very verses on a lot of levels. We actively seek to put into play some of these very principles. This is why we collect gifts on the Lord's Day. I'm not sure what the internet's going to do to that in the next generation, but at any rate, it's very physical even for us yet at this point to at least some tangible collection on the Lord's Day. He says, so that it doesn't happen when I come. He doesn't mean you're not going to collect. It means you will collect every Lord's Day in worship of Christ, in advance of the gospel, so that when I come, it's there. He doesn't want to be this big show of raising money as a, as a traveling evangelist, as was so often done and so often misused. That was his instruction. What was the response in, among the Gentile churches? Remember these passages in 2 Corinthians. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Look at this. Begging us begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Could you imagine knocking on the door of the IRS, wherever and whatever that is, and say, could I please pay my taxes? I so long to. I beg with you. Can I, in fact, these are my taxes. Can I give you more? It's unimaginable, isn't it? That's where they are. Could we please give our wealth away? We want to share in this great work. And they gave not only what they could afford, they gave what they couldn't afford. They gave till it hurt. And they begged earnestly to do it. The response for the ministry of this service is not only now supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So monetarily, it's helping the impoverished. It will. He hasn't gotten it there yet, but it will. But it's also putting praise in the mouth of people to God, and that's always a win. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. This is the good sanctified mischief that Paul is up to right here at the end. 
with this massive gift coming into Jerusalem to supply the saints and bless them, this is exactly what he wants. He wants their hearts to be bound together in love, Jew and Gentile in Christ. And without apology, he raises money, and without apology, he takes this gift in order to bind the church together. This is the agenda. Now again, philosophically, theologically, verse 27, he adds that they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their, the Jews', the Jews spiritual blessings, they, the Gentiles, ought also to be of service to them, Jewish believers, in material blessings. This is, this is just a given in Paul's mind. They owe it to them. Not in a legal sense. It's not a tax. But in a salvation historical sense. What's the connection? What, if you're tracking with the book of Romans, you're tracking with what Paul has said here, this, I get this. This is making sense. It brings us back to chapters 9 through 11. How is it that you could say the Gentiles owe the Jewish Christians? Well, it fits what he's been saying. Chapter 9, they are Israelites. To them belong the adoption. The glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. God worked through the bloodlines of Israel to bring His Messiah into this world. Those bloodlines don't evaporate with the coming of Christ. They point to Jesus as Messiah. All that God has revealed, all of His electing grace and saving purposes worked out through Israel is very significant to the Gentiles. He continues on in chapter 11. Did Israel stumble in order that they might fall? They have stumbled. Is it that they might fall in destruction forever? By no means. Rather, it's this. Through their trespass, through their tripping, Salvation has come to the Gentiles. A window has been opened up, an opportunity for the Gentiles to respond in a way they never would have responded had Israel responded as they should. And so, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. God's up to this as well. To stimulate Israel to respond to Christ as they see Gentiles responding in massive numbers. Now, if the Jews' trespass means riches for the Gentiles, and if Israel's failure means riches for the Gentiles, you see the riches that we inherit through Israel. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And you, although a wild olive shoot, you Gentile, you non-Israelite in the flesh, like me, says Paul, you're a wild olive shoot grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree of salvation. So don't be arrogant toward the branches, the Jews who have rejected Christ. 
If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root supports you. We owe it to them. The Gentile churches were saying. Not owe, again, not, not, not in a legal sense, not in a taxation sense, but in a salvation historical sense. You see, here's where people, I mean, this is the connection, and that means so much to us beyond just the context here. These people are thinking about these ideas, about the risen Christ, about his mission, and that larger picture and scheme is getting into their pockets. It's getting them to get out the checkbook, to get online and to transfer money. It's getting them to say, I'm not going to buy this so that I can participate in the sharing of the gospel of Christ in this mission. That's when you know Jesus is Lord. When you begin to live your daily life in a way that is different from the world around you to the advance of his cause because you believe indeed he reigns. You believe indeed that he is calling a people from the nations for his name and that there is no greater joy in sharing in this world than in sharing in that victory. So Paul is gathering these resources. He's going to take them, this massive collection, to the Jewish believers across the empire. So here's the deal then. If the Gentiles will freely share their resources with the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, it will be a sign of their love and respect for Israel's holy calling in Christ's mission. It will lock them into the salvation historical plan of the risen Christ if they will give freely, and they have. And if the Jewish believers in Jerusalem accept this gift, it will indicate that they have received the Gentile believers as participants in the new covenant and the new age of the Spirit. And those Jewish believers will praise God. So Paul's driving motivation is really not just the relief of the impoverished. In compassion, it's that. But theologically, it's much larger. It is a, almost like we could call it this. It's almost an object lesson to the unity of the church in Christ. No longer will you, as a follower of God, relate to Him through the law of Moses and its stipulations. Now, Jew and Gentile together in Christ will come to God through the Son through grace, not through law. Paul lays out his future intentions in verse 28. Where he says, When therefore I have completed this, that gift to Jerusalem, and I've delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know, verse 29, that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. What's he saying? First, I must deliver the gift to the Jerusalem church, assuring that it arrives with the stamp of apostolic approval. I've got to be there in order to make that clear. Second, I must explain the gift's unifying significance in light of the gospel. And I might even have somewhat confused a few of you along the way here. How does this gift work? How does it unite Jew and Gentile? What's he up to here? 
Well, it's going to be the same thing in the Jerusalem church. If they're going to get the point that this is more than simply economic relief, that there's a theological principle at work here that he's seeking to demonstrate, he's going to have to do some teaching, right? So he's going to go as an apostle to explain this to the church. Sensing the compulsion to do this at great personal risk, when that mission is completed, when he seals the deal on his, this fruit of the gospel's unifying power, then he will visit Rome. And he will do so in order to gain their help in his mission to Spain. He also keenly anticipates the sweet fellowship again that his visit will bring. I think what he's saying here, I think in part, is I really want to come to you and celebrate the victory. That's kind of the idea, isn't it, in verse 28? When I leave for Spain by way of you, I know, verse 29, that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I, I trust that this gift will be received. I trust that the church will be united across Jew and Gentile divide and that we will be able to celebrate. Now, ironically, he as a Jew and they largely as Gentiles. Or maybe not ironically. Isn't it interesting? He who delivers the spiritual blessings as a Jew will receive material blessings from this largely Gentile church. So in a sense, this will mirror the mission that Paul is pursuing there in Jerusalem as material gifts are given by Gentiles to couple with Paul's spiritual investment in them. So summarize visually for us on the map here what he's saying to them, writing almost certainly from the city of Corinth. He's saying, first, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and take this gift. Then, I'm going to come and visit you. And then from there, you by your grace and kindness and sharing with me, will send me on to Spain. And who knows? Probably, maybe not across the sea. Maybe across land into what we know today to be France and down into Spain. But at any rate, this was kind of the western frontier of gospel advance. And that's what he's up to in this section. So Paul has explained his future plans. He sought the church's partnership with him in the gospel. And now he turns to the present. And we see his immediate appeal to the church at Rome to contend in prayer for his mission in Jerusalem. Verse 30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. So on the authority of Jesus, grounded in the love of that the Holy Spirit nurtures in the heart of believers, that He generates this love for one another, Paul makes an earnest appeal. It's this, will you strive together with me in prayer? These are amazing words. Paul's on mission in a danger zone in Jerusalem. And he says to the Roman church, I want you to struggle alongside of me. To contend with me. To wrestle in prayer for this blessing. I'm going into the lion's den. I go to Jerusalem. I barely got out of there with my life before. And it will not be safe now. 
But this union of Jew and Gentile in the gospel, in the church, is utterly essential, and I've got to do this. So I ask you to pray for me. Contend with me in prayer. Get busy and work alongside of me. Think of this for a moment. We can actually do this. We're here in Rome. Speak as from the standpoint of the Roman believers. We're here in Rome. He's heading east to Jerusalem. But we can triangulate with the risen Christ and be part of what He's doing. We can wrestle and work and take on the risk of prayer with Paul and be in the mission with him. That's a point of conviction to me, certain to each of us as a church. How fervent are our prayers for those with whom we partner in the gospel who are in other places? Through the risen Christ, we can be in immediate contact. We can be in their mission. That's what he's pleading for here. Verse 31, that I may be delivered. This is what he wants them to pray for. First, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Secondly, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. We get that, right? The physical safety is necessary and that the gift would be received. Verse 32, so that through your prayers, supplying safety and response, that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. That all of this taking place, this safety that I cannot secure, this response to the gift that I cannot secure, will you join me and pray with me so that when I come and see you, we can rejoice together in gospel victory, even though they've never left home. An amazing thing, isn't it? You're not on the mission field today in one sense of the term. One sense of the term we are, but in another sense we're not. But we can be on any field in this world as we pray for those that are carrying on the work of Christ. That's what he's calling for here. And you notice again the emphasis on joy. That with joy we will be refreshed in one another's company. He longs to meet them and to be refreshed by them. This weary traveler who will be so far from home expects to find in them a source of warm fellowship. And the reason, again, is the risen Christ. God is our, their Father. They are the redeemed, rooted into the same salvation vine and root. So Paul knew he would find in Rome believers who loved Jesus Christ as Lord, who valued the Holy Scriptures, who loved Him as a brother in Christ, and here he would find people who longed to share their resources for the advance of the gospel. You're going to share with Him. He was certain of it. He counted on it. He grew bold to suggest it. A genuine, born-again, faithful Christian who travels from one believing church to another always has a home. I'm on a, in a network of pastors where there is, I would say, weekly, if not daily, 
of feed that says, anybody know of a good, strong church in Bucharest? In Groton, Connecticut? In some place in Zambia? There are people we know through Christ with whom we are far closer, though separated by half a world, than we are to our neighbors who are not in Christ. It's an amazing concept, an amazing fellowship, and Paul plays on it here. I've told the story to the church numerous times. I share it with those of you who've never heard the story, but I, I, it, it, I'll take it to my grave, the impression that it left upon me. The first time that I traveled to India which is, is sort of culturally like not being able to swim and being thrown off the, into the deep end. I mean, it, culturally, the distance is massive. But in India, I remember very distinctly from the airport, and that was a cultural, wow, difference. But driving along the road and seeing in the eyes a darkness like I'd never seen. There's a, a, a controlling paganism in that land and the eyes were dark and the faces were hard and the reception to somebody who wasn't among them like me was not there. It was a hard, cruel world in the hand of Satan. It was troubling almost. I went to bed got up the next morning, and in the house where I slept, a small church gathered. And the eyes, they were all different. They were bright. They were alive. They were welcoming. There were smiles on the face and gifts that were shared and joy in the Lord. And in this strange place, so separated from the world that I knew, here were my people. These were my brothers and sisters in Jesus. And we sense this throughout the world, and Paul knows that. And obviously there's some connection here culturally to them as, as citizens of the Roman Empire. But this Jewish rabbi going to the center of the empire in Rome expects to have family fellowship with people he's never met. We can, for one reason, the risen Christ. He saves us the same way. We're sinners lost in the same kind of sins, though culturally they may play out very differently. We are in the same lost condition, and Christ rescues us. When He does, we become brothers and sisters, and we share in His light. There is a Father in heaven. There really is a common bond in our Savior. And it all prophesies that one eternal day around the throne, people from every tribe and tongue and nation will gather there as one. May the God of peace be with you all. He closes. Amen. It's not a throwaway closing, but words of blessing as he heads off to Jerusalem where dangers await. Well, what do we know of the story? 
Paul did not arrive in Rome according to plan. He did get to Jerusalem. He was able to deliver the gift from everything that we know. But as the church at Rome joined in fervent prayer for Paul's safety, God answered that prayer, but not according to plan. He was imprisoned, and he ended up on ice for two years. Not literally, figuratively. But they just like didn't deal with him. Two years sitting in prison waiting for the authorities to decide that they were going to do something about it. He appeals to Caesar, takes the harrowing journey at sea, and then the church receives him there in Rome. There's considerable freedom that he enjoys there when he does eventually arrive. Did they help send him to Spain? We don't know. Nothing in the New Testament says that they did. Nothing says necessarily that they did not. I think it's very unlikely. After the imprisonment here in Rome, I believe that Paul was released. I don't think 2 Timothy is talking about the imprisonment that he will run into here when he goes to Jerusalem. I think he's released, but the indicators are just hints in the New Testament text that he actually went back east probably to deal with some troubles in churches and with people and situations. And I don't know if he ever got to Rome again after that imprisonment, if he ever was able to launch from there to Spain. We have no knowledge of that. We cannot prove it. There are some tantalizing hints in the historical record after the New Testament, some individuals claiming that he made it to Spain, but there's no serious indication that they're doing anything more than some wishful revisionist thinking. We don't know. We'll talk to Paul when, when we get there. It wasn't important for the biblical text. But let me stress again, just as we meditate for a few more moments, this is no outdated history recorded for our curiosity. This indeed is our story. It's just that now, it's, it's our, if we could use the analogy, it's our play. And some of the actors now have been moved off of the stage in this world, have entered into the presence of the Lord and to their reward, and now we're on the stage. It's our time. It's our story. We are called here to conscious partnership in the gospel spread. We don't do this just so churches can grow and we can do the thing that we've traditionally done. We do this as a church, to lock into the larger purposes of Christ in this world now, in our day, in our time. And what joy we have as a church to indeed partner with missionary evangelists throughout this world. As we partner with the days in India and plan a trip there within about nine months' time, to support the work there again, to teach others with them, to partner with them. Recently, a sizable gift given anonymously from our church to help them in their ministry there. What a joy that is to share with them as a church our resources. We have given considerable money financially, and we will continue to carry on influence with teaching and support and encouragement. The Sienkiewicz family working in Lithuania in a difficult place 
and the work that we've been able to do to visit there as well and to teach there, things that they are asking us to teach, that they're wanting to know about and to see that work carried on. The farmers in Cambodia seeking to learn the language Lao and, and having learned Khmer and seeking to reach people who have never heard the gospel of Christ on the front edge of pioneering work there in that region of Cambodia, we have the privilege to pray with them, to labor with them, and to share with them. And by God's grace, the farmers will be with us this summer to share with us the work that's happening there. When they come, may they find open ears. May they find warm hearts. May they find a church that shares. The Grotskys laboring in Spain, the least evangelized Spanish-speaking country in the world, that persecution has locked up and permitted the gospel, not permitting the gospel to be sounded freely. We support them in their very difficult work, their challenging work of just meeting one person at a time usually around tables, and seeking to be faithful to that message in a world that is so filled with confusion about who Jesus is. The Straubs working in Zambia, teaching teachers, raising up and training church leaders, taking at times journeys into places where there is little or no training theologically, and seeking to build up the church in Zambia where there is response the Purdue's in China, and has been prayed already today of two elders going there uh, just within a matter of weeks to see the work there, to, to identify with it, to understand it better, to come back and communicate with us what is happening there as the Purdue's seek to meet, reach the Uyghur people and others that nobody's trying to reach. Now, virtually, I mean, there's just very, very little gospel witness to this massive group of Muslims living in China. We don't just look at that, well, that's nice, they have a job to do. We say, this is our job. This is our task. This is, we are doing this as we contend with them in prayer. And those within our own assembly that go and come, such as Jeff Thomas and other elders and various individuals that take short-term mission trips that leave and come to seek to bless uh, bless the church of Jesus Christ. And here in our own area, of course, we won't recite what goes on here, but as out of our church to the very near projects of Crystal Lake and Richfield Bible. As we are this year pouring in resources to see these churches take hold and grow up, this is a joy. This is a partnership in Christ These aren't games that we are playing. This is our time. We're on the stage here to press that work forward. May we then commit ourselves in light of this text to be a source of generous sharing by laying down gifts for those who carry the gospel. When speakers come, those who are involved in the ministry of the gospel in this country in varying places, we lay down gifts like we're buying shares in the gospel enterprise. What great encouragement, I think it's on our bulletin last week, of the gift that was received for 
Pastor Murray as he came and spoke to us about marriage and about family and about suffering. Some of you look at it and they say, that's ridiculous to give a speaker that kind of money. We, we really gave to that guy. You could have that cynical kind of thing. This is not a gift to him that goes into his pocket and enriches him and allows him to buy $2,000 shoes for the next time he speaks. This is money that continues to get invested in the cause of Christ to carry on that teaching that people need in varying churches, which costs money to travel as he does this in retirement. It's a great blessing. It's a joy to share that with him. I can't wait to write the letter and say, this is how Eden Baptist Church is responding to your ministry. Carry on for Christ. We long to be a source of help to all who come. And I need to limit it to that. But we certainly should be challenged with prayer to enter into the world of those that represent us. And certainly there's others that you know. Don't limit it just to this, but as we look at our own church, to enter in with prayer, to join with the work that they're doing. The Spirit should not be mine. We will protect what is ours. The Spirit should be how can we give? How can we share in the cause of the Gospel with you? And the larger picture, let me stress once again, is the risen Christ. It's that triangular relationship that helps us put everything into perspective, that leads us to see the Lordship of Christ, that helps us to understand how my money relates to somebody else doing something in another country, in another place. How we understand our relationship with each other. And the motivation, of course, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, we simply are seeking in all of this to live out our imitation of Christ. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, so that we, through His poverty, might be rich. Father, we praise You for Your kindness to us in Christ, for the joy that we have to partner together in the Gospel. And I plead in behalf of Eden Baptist Church as a church, certainly members individually, but as an assembly partnering together, I pray that You will enable us to be a generous church, that your grace would be measured here in our assembly by giving and sharing and supporting the cause. We pray for those that are even now beginning to think about and train for the mission in Philadelphia this summer. We pray for those seeking to reach out to children in our neighborhood as we prepare for those outreaches. We pray for these missionaries that we have mentioned and the various challenges and trials that they face and the people that they have and that they will evangelize who have never heard the name of Jesus. Lord, here and now we contend with you, with them, for the glory of your name. We pray that you will allow us to leave a legacy to the next generation to share, to give, to support, to join and link into 
the work of the risen Savior. For those who know not Christ as Savior, I pray that they would see this work and know that the risen Christ, they must come to terms with Him. For as this text says earlier, they will stand before Him in judgment. May they come to terms with the risen Christ, with His conquering mission, with His salvation from sin, and respond even today. For those who have responded, I pray that we would give ourselves to this work and that you would help us to put disease and suffering and trial and want and need and lack and disappointment, discouragement, and all of it. May we connect it to the reality of our risen Savior and to the work that He's doing, keeping all of our trials in perspective as you help us carry forward one day at a time, joining this great work. I pray for this assembly to this end. I pray for my own heart to this end. Help us to share. To share our wealth, to share our time, to share our focus, to prioritize what our Savior prioritizes, reigning at your right hand. It is through Him that we pray. Amen.